everybody, this is Friendly Anarchism. I interviewed Plato this week. He is a protest artist and musician. It's a really great episode. I'm excited for it. Before it starts, I just wanted to let you know, I am going to be in the Bay Area all of next week. I'm going to the book fair. Woo! I'm super excited. It's been on the bucket list for a really long time. So if you are in the Bay Area and you are interested in being on the show, go ahead and email me a little bit about yourself and what it is you want to talk about. And we'll see if we can hook something up. I'd love to talk to some interesting people down there. There's a lot been going on and a lot of really awesome stuff that happens in that area. So uh, my email is friendlyanarchism at protonmail.com. All right, here we go. So yeah, with climate change, I've been thinking about on the gardening front for a few years, gardeners have been talking about it because you, you see like these erratic spikes in temperatures yeah. or drops like especially like in spring, we're all getting ready for, you know, the year's crop. And then you might have like a week that's really warm and then a cold week and then another warm week and then a cold week. And like that's irregular and that throws like certain plants all out of whack. Like maybe your pear tree has a warm spike or reacts to the warm spike in weather and the pear tree is like, time to come out with some blossoms. And then the cold weather, like you get some free cold ice storm or something in February or March, and then that just like kills all the blossoms. So on the gardening front, we've been thinking about climate change for a few years, my friends and I, but this is a whole different level of like, oh, I got to stay inside for days on end. Like, so I think that's really hitting the general populace around here a lot harder than I mean, Multnomah Falls just burned down. Yeah. Did you hear? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the lodge didn't... I haven't checked on it, but, like, the last I saw, like, the fire was just creeping right towards the falls. They saved the lodge last night, but, like, like the whole state's burning to the ground right now. Yeah. Oh, my god. They gosh. have ash all over Portland. Yeah, I heard there's snowing ash. Yeah. That sounds so apocalyptic. Yeah, I mean, yesterday I look out at the sun, and it's orange yeah you can look at the sun in you the can middle look of at the, the day. sun i know i just like looked at it and i could it looked like the moon yeah something. yeah it was really only creepy <laughs> yeah it's like where is the sun that's that's so weird yeah <sighs> i was saying to people like i really wish that we could concentrate on one apocalypse at a time <laughs> that <laughs> would be really nice <laughs> like let's just do like if we could just do climate change today and, like fascism tomorrow and then, like we could talk about North Korea on Friday or yeah. something, you know like <laughs> just like or, just like keep it <laughs> or just scrambling from thing to thing like that's yeah. it's so remarkable right now all of that that is going on on every single front I, I shared on Facebook today I was like okay it's 2017 I was like, we have floods and fires galore. I was like, our president is insane. The whole federal government is corrupt and ineffective right now. We have rampant racism, runaway capitalism. But at least I don't have to worry about people stealing CDs out of my car at the moment. No? Why not? Because nobody buys CDs anymore. <laughs> nobody, like... I had a friend make fun of me for having a bunch of CDs in my car. I know. I still, I still, I still have, have CDs like, one of those, I have this big thing of CDs. <laughs> me too. And she was just like, are those CDs? And I was like, maybe. I know. That's what got me thinking about that. 
It's like, uh, I have some friends that tease me. I'm like, I'm not going to buy like some kind of new Spotify player for my car to play something. I'll just rock the CDs in my car yeah. CD player. Well, my CD player in my car is broken. It's got like a CD switcher, six CDs. But because it's broken, it's been like the same four CDs for like years and years and years. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, two of them are like really good mixes. One of them is a mix by my mom. But then I've also got... Um, Ready to Die, <laughs> and um, a Bowie, which was good, too. Okay. It's just like, I just kind of loop through the four. <laughs> I had everybody who uh, had Manu Chow's album, um, the one with Bunga Bum, stuck in it, oh, yeah. just one oh, no. CD in his car for, like, well over a year before he got rid of that car. I had the same thing with CD Break. Same thing happened in an old car of mine, but that was only, didn't have a CD change, it was just one CD. And it was um, crisscross jump. <laughs> oh, it was a car from the eighties. It's oh, like you found no. this car from the eighties, and then crisscross comes on. And it's like it's classic. <laughs> classic. Talk about the power of art. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh right. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the power. Start starting with crisscross. The peak. Make you say jump. Peak twentieth century um, high art. The flood makes you jump, jump. Levy want to make. It's oh, not no. even funny. It's like, it's not, yeah. It's sad. It didn't work. No. <sighs> wow. Jinx, that's a, jinx on the side. Yeah. But that's that's what art, that's why we need art, really. Yeah. It's like all of this going on, and art really speaks to so many sides of the human character. You know, we talked about that rah, 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 and we need that side sometimes. And, and I know that art has definitely inspired me to like feel like I have more courage than I necessarily had going into a protest um and then art also can give you that solace and that recognition that you're not alone and that we are all experiencing stuff together and uh maybe that's maybe it's time to make some songs more songs about climate change Oh, maybe just, um, yeah, art feels more important than ever, really, because things are so dark. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what are we fighting for? You know, you have to remember. Yeah, and, you know, art really carries messages and carries meanings, and, you know, all protest movements need to have, like, a central narrative. They need to have a structure of meaning to be cohesive. And art can really be that. I mean, there's the same reason why the official state culture industry has their their media that they're promoting is because mm-hmm. art can be a weapon because it's so powerful and effective for interacting with our minds and our hearts. Like, I once read a review of poetry talking about it's this perfect medium because it's like speaks to the intellect as well as to the heart. Mm. It speaks to emotion and reason. And I think the best art certainly does that. It's a way that we can really carry messages and values that we want to see and pictures of a world that we want to see uh, forward in this age. Or maybe even some of these kinds of art that we need to be making is what we don't want to see. Um, you know, it's I find it funny that there's such a, a popularity of like apocalyptic type of art. Mm. in this era. Yeah. You know, like, uh, Walking Dead's getting ready to come back. 
right. on. And that's like the most popular TV show in America right now. But it's like they're dealing with this post-apocalyptic reality. And then I think about where our conversation just started out talking about climate change and think about where I was talking with a friend earlier today, how it's like, you know, if the temperature rises a certain number of degrees, then scientists and sociologists are predicting like collapse levels of societal collapse which could look somewhat like a zombie apocalyptic reality um well i yeah naomi klein in one of her books i don't remember which one i had to stop reading naomi klein because i have panic attacks <laughs> like it's just like wow yeah she doesn't really pull punches um which i guess you sh- you can't you like you have to not do that which, yeah yeah but uh she was saying that if we didn't get off just stop getting any fossil fuels out of the ground by the end of 2017, and this book was written in, like, 2014, then there was a 50% chance of total societal collapse. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if I can remember. I read a book a few months ago that was, like, one of those books that, like, you're just like, oh, crap, my environmentalist buddy gave it to me, and, uh, he was like, you got to read this book. And I was like reading through and it was very hard to like follow it through because he's just shooting down like, he's like, oh, you think we're going to like reach some global like agreement to cut down our emissions? He's like, when have we came to like, look at the dynamics first off for a global agreement to like happen. America, Russia and China are going to have to make massive sacrifices they probably don't want to. And then say we do figure out a way to get some international agreement into place. Look at what's happened with previous international agreements, such as like uh, international agreements to ban slavery. It's like there's still slavery. Like, so there's still going to be pollution. It just like shoots down like all of these hopes. He's like, what, you think we're going to ge- geoengineer clouds? This is why that's not going to work. And like all of this stuff, it's just like... It was so hard to cope with. Well, I mean, one of the nice things a little bit about being, like, a far-leftist revolutionary is the idea that it's like, well, this society is so broken, collapse isn't kind of, like, the idea, (laughs) you know, like, sort of, you know what I mean? Like, you're talking about a full revolution, you're talking about taking down this system that is completely irreconcilably broken. Yeah. You know, like, you can't reform it. So all these ideas people are talking about reform, it's like, capitalism and the state are so pervasive... And so, like, entwined, the only choice is to tear it down. And with climate change and all of these things, it's tearing itself down. Yeah, yeah. You know it's, what I mean? So it's, it's making like, these consumerist-based uh, economies yeah. no longer sufficient that they're going to work. So. Yeah, so it's like, we so, kind of knew this was going to happen if you just paid attention. You yeah, know, people, yeah. Lots of people have been saying for the last century, century and <laughs> a half, like, uh, having a system based on continuous growth in a world of finite resources is a pretty fucked up... That's a bad plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that yeah. is, like, not a good Very idea. This There's gonna, a fallacy in your logic. <laughs> this is gonna end badly. The equation does not equal out. You know, so it's like, this is sort of... Uh, so, like, revolution against the state against capitalism is an idea that's been around for a long time, and people have been thinking about it for a long time, and it's starting to come to pass and it's always going to be ugly it is always going to be ugly and it's going to be so much more intense than what we dream about though you know like mm-hmm. it's one thing to be like god this world is so corrupt and ineffective and inefficient and just we need a new system it's one thing to like 
think that and like that's that's kind of easy it's another thing to think about like maybe some loved ones you have that are in some kind of old folks home that's like yeah. state sponsored and like all of those kind of like tough dynamics like make no doubt about it to have a full-scale revolution which i still think that we need does not mean that there's not going to be a lot of pain and suffering. Oh, definitely, that's just and definitely it. I think about yeah. people that I love that have invested their whole lives into a system, and now I'm like, I think this system is ready to go. And like, well, it's sort of the things that people at this point maybe denial will finally break. Like maybe I, you know, just hear people talking about their 401ks, and I'm like, are you paying attention? Everything's on fire. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not sure. Like. You're thinking about, like, your retirement planning in 50 years. It's like, is there going to be a... Like, what is going to be on in 50 years? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, interesting thing, though. Interesting dynamic. What's happening right now is we talk about what revolution looked like to people during the whole last century and during sort of the revolutionary era of, like, the late 1800s to, like, mid-1900s. It was this, like, rise up in arms, overthrow the government, bloody you know, very yeah. kind of thing. But what I'm seeing now is a very... What's been developing throughout the continuous worsening of, like, sort of rising authoritarianism and increasing knowledge and understanding of climate change is a very much more joyous, artistic type of revolution, actually. Like, the, de- like the bloody ones, obviously, there's civil wars and things go very badly, but right now it seems like in a way that hasn't been expressed, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. You know, there's the Dadaists in the early, in the very early 1900s, um, but right now it just, it feels like there's a lot of, there's actually a weird, a weird amount of humor for what is happening. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that humor oftentimes is like, you know, a way to cope with pain, in a sense, and yeah. a way to cope with uncertainty and uncomfortability. And there's certainly a lot of that. So, yeah, I, I guess I never had any predictions for what the atmosphere of, of the... I feel like they're all there. There's, like, the joyous side of it. There's a lot of satire. There's a lot of toxicness, too, though, in all honesty, in, yeah. in my perspective. of Yeah, there is. All of this. So I feel like pick your emotion and, and it's out there and it, maybe a different group is expressing it or it's a different day, but... It seems like people under intense conditions move to extremes. So I sort yeah, of see the extremes here being sort of depressive and manic. Yeah. People moving those directions. Absolutely. You know, so it's or sort of like really like angry and violent and depressive and then also just like a little, little nuts... Yeah, because, like, you if you think about, like, we humans create structures to coddle us through life. Yeah. I feel like, you know, all societies do that. And, uh, you know, I, I guess here I'm taking some inspiration from some of Freud's thoughts and stuff. But I feel like we like to create structure that limits freedom in a, in a sense. We like our freedom, too. But we like security. We like to know. But we live in this era in which, like, all of those structures that have supported us for so long, generations, are rapidly going down the toilet, falling apart. And so there's, like, a free-falling. And part of it's exhilarating when you're free-falling. Like, it's like, I'm just going to create a new world then. Like, 
you know, I, I probably should be way farther on, like, some kind of career path by now. Like, I graduated a month after the Great Recession hit. Like, stats <laughs> are like, you people are F for the rest of, like, your economic career. Great. Um, you know, and sometimes I go on Craigslist and try to figure out how, like, use my degree and build myself to chase the carrot on the stick and catch up with Mr. Joneses because that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's what maybe for generations I was told to do. And then I look out there and there's like, you know, there's nothing out there on Craigslist that, like, aligns with that vision. And so then it's like, well, F it, dude. Let's just create beauty create new yeah, things create that really serve us and that's really it's stimulating and exhilarating yeah it is that's the thing is with great change comes great possibility yeah you know so right now it's very exciting to be part of the anarchist movement when so many people are thinking in this very new way you know in this very like in a way that is based in well one of my favorite things about anarchism is that anarchism works and is actually the natural reaction to disaster. It works under catastrophic conditions. And since we're heading into a century of, like, pretty terrible catastrophic conditions, like, anarchy's right there for you. You know, like, that's why anarchists are on the ground right now, the first people on the ground in these catastrophic conditions, and hurricanes. You know, like, yeah. they're it's just right there. It's very quick on its feet. It's just qu- very quick <laughs> on its feet, and because the idea of, you know, um, you know, it's in, or- in organizing and in dealing with consensus and stuff, always, um, assuming best intentions from people. Uh, we believe, when we believe that without all of these structures and oppressive systems and everything, that humans are basically good. So, And it shows in disaster situations, people put down their differences and just immediately like, jump into taking care of each other yeah. in community. You know, it's like the idea of mutual aid. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, we need each other now. We, we, like, we just, that's just reality is, like, we have to, we need each other right now. Yeah. You know, so, um, so it's shitty, but it's also, I feel much, com- much better being an anarchist knowing just, not even just theoretically, but on the ground, seeing it happen, that humans can work together and, you can have certain, like, structural stability, even if it's not a hierarchical structure, and community stability under even terrible conditions. So, right now, sort of what I've done is, yeah, I really have set aside the, the, like, meeting the Joneses thing to concentrate on teaching people about anarchism, because I think people are looking around right now, like, oh, what do we do? And it's like, well, there's this thing. Here you go. Like, it, like, it really, like, it works. So and, let's, Yeah, and that's, you that's, know. that's our place right now is, is change-making agents, whether it's activists or artists or artist-activists, yeah. is to give people that, what do we do now what do we when do the now? old structures have fallen apart, yeah. whether you go, well, let me sit down and, like, tell you about anarchism, or, or just come to this meeting and, like, be a part of a consensus-building experience. You have your mind blown. I know yeah. I did. Or, like, here's this poem that might show you the light at the end of the tunnel after all of this mm-hmm. uh, world-shaking um, stuff that's going on. Yeah, and just holding on to the good stuff when everything's falling apart. Like, how important yeah. it is to hold on to the good stuff about humanity, you know? So, yeah. like, the, the the fact that we can work cooperatively, that we do take care of each other. Gosh. And then and then art. Like, yeah. art is one of the most important things, the like, the good things that humans 
do. Help, you know? Art <laughs> helps us remember what the good things yeah. are, you know, and how art helps us see and realize that, you know, you could, there could be a news story that's like 13 anarchists form a little collective and bring some water down to some people in Harvey. And that that's going to hit people. And they're going to be like, oh, that's beautiful. But you could, like, really create a story and show the emotions of the people that are, like, maybe going to drop the water off. And maybe there's some conflict because they're dropping the water off to some, like, Tea Party Republican-type people that they don't normally agree with. And there's conflict. But this group suddenly decides what's more important is to show that we can rely on each other and help each other. And, and they deliver the water, even though there's this cognitive dissonance well now we've just like started to create like some big story that like is pulling emotions out that everybody can relate to and and the fact of the matter is is when we hear other people's stories we like a part Mm -hmm. of our brain Mm -hmm. fires those same uh neural uh networks the same like for connections yeah um that when it happens to us that's how strong our ability to empathize is and so like by the very ability or by the very fact of us listening to more stories we're increasing our ability to empathize and understand these different situations so like art can definitely help us yeah it's this is really cynical but one of the things that works in anarchy is it's you know the media the stories the art has been so repressed yeah right because the systems don't want people to know about anarchy and the fact that it works because that kind of ruins their whole no the only stories that are allowed are scary stories about killing president mckinley or something yeah i mean like or like the propaganda of the deed alexander berkman like (laughs) trying to kill the um the whatever, I think, oil magnate or whatever. He missed, man. Like, he yeah. missed. So, I'm just saying. No, <laughs> but, no, that's how it... But, I, yeah. the, I mean, that's, that's... Yeah, that was sort of beside the point. I was, I was getting at is um, first-hand experience uh, with anarchists and with anarchists not being scary and terrible and with anarchists just helping people and, like, being there, you know, and knowing what they're doing and being ready to jump in and take care of people and take care of each other... Um, that's the first-hand experience is what's starting to, like, change the narrative because as there's more and more fascism, um, anti-fascists are more and more visible and having more and more direct interactions with the community at large because they have to be. So it's impossible to keep their narrative up when enough people in the community have actually just met anarchists and been like, they were great. I don't yeah. know. Like, you can't, like, how are you calling them terrorists? Like, they, this person, like, helped save me from my house. Like, this person, I watched them defend me and get hit in the face. And that's you what know, people like, are going to care about yeah, more but, than anything else. Right. And, the, yeah, and then, the, I'm sorry. The, no, no, the, no, the, cynical, the cynical part of that is that it's, as things get worse, there's more and more firsthand experience. So, like, you know, so, like, the narrative's changing just on its own. But then... It also requires more than that. Like it really does require this cultural underpinning of the art and the and the like. The like what else is tied to anarchist culture is art is really important to it, and to protest culture is art. And the fact that when all these terrible things are happening, like we also ha- like have to have art, or it gets into this really dark place that you can't get out of. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it seems like it's the buoy, it's the life jacket. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think about 
Gosh, I mean, it's, it's, it's so powerful. I think about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, like this poet, Andrea Gibson, points out that it reads more like a poem than an actual speech. Or I think about Nelson Mandela uh, when he was getting out of prison. And, you know, South Africa has a lot of conflict right then. And in an effort towards reconciliation and moving forward in his change-making quest, he, he read poetry to the country. And I, I wholeheartedly agree that art is what establishes our values. Um, you know, I, on all levels, the structure of art is like art types, really. You know, I mean... Shells. Humans have been using shells for thousands of years in our art. So much that, like, you see a shell and you start to maybe think of an experience you've had on the ocean. Mm -hmm. Or you think about maybe a Beach Boys song or something related to the ocean. Uh, shell oil takes this, like, very famous old, like, kind of image and repurposes it to promote itself. Corporations do this all the time. And mm -hmm. It's because, like, when we see these structures, we we don't even really notice it, but they speak to our subconscious yeah. and, and we respond to them. And so it's like these structures are for everybody to use, um... Or everybody is going to use them. Oh, people that are in favor of oppression are going to use them for oppression. People that are in favor of liberation or anarchy or whatever are going to use these structures, these archetypal structures that react to the mind for their purposes. Yeah, so the, there's, this, uh, there's a battle for the subconscious... You know, Absolutely. Battle for the for art and for the soul and like what does that Absolutely. look like? Absolutely. And look at the city. I mean, graffiti and murals are my favorite example of that because on one hand you have billboards and then the, on the other hand you have maybe like some street artist, some Bansky type of thing that is like mocking the very billboard that's going on. So like even throughout our city, there's like little conflicts. Um, mm -hmm. between different messages, all using art as the medium. And, and so we should be aware of how art sh gives shape to reality and or society and is shaped by society. And we as artists really need to understand that power and that um, we need to place importance with the intent of our art with that in our mind. Mm. Help me, how have you done that in protest situations? Or, like, what... Because I know you've done a lot of protest art. Like, what are some of the examples that you've done? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I, I can tell you some stories. I'm trying to think of how they, like, really tie into what I just said. The first story <laughs> that, that comes to my mind about doing art, like, at a protest, I'm not quite sure why this is the first one that comes to my mind. I can give you a, a handful of stories or more if we want to go through them of a very powerful uh, way that we used art in a protest is back in the, uh, back in the Occupy days, um, <laughs> there was a march on the banks. And we shut down every bank in Eugene one afternoon. It was glorious. Um, and we were outside a Chase Bank. And at the time, uh, there was a controversy around Chase because, you know, you know the mortgage housing crisis was a big part of the financial meltdown. And one of the things that Chase was accused of or was guilty of during that era is they had kicked out vets um, out of their houses that couldn't keep up on their mortgage payments. And so, like, 
you know, I'm personally against the whole like military industrial complex, but we, we want to use the vets as an example of like this insidious toxic practice by Chase Bank. So we like set up this uh, street theater skit where we had a chase and we had a soldier and I was, I think I was the soldier, which if people know me in real life, that that shows my acting range. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways, and we had a mother and I, I left for the war and uh, I, I get my leg blown. But we have a mother that like then gets kicked out in the skit and, and uh, the chase bank and the police are removing her and she's like the actress um, who's just a protester friend of ours, not an actual actress, starts, like, almost crying, like, getting into a character. And, like, it stopped people. They, like, people weren't, like, gonna just go into business as usual into Chase Bank on this afternoon, because we had about 200 people outside of the bank. We had a big skit, and we had this woman screaming and trying to grab her cardboard box, pretending it was home, and she had a little, like, doll as a baby, and, like... And so all these people that were going in to do their transactions stopped and were just like, oh my gosh. And then we handed out the pamphlets really fast of like, you know, look up the facts. This is what Chase has been up to. And I think that that's like one example very quick that came to my mind of how like art has been like really powerful in a protest setting. I think, uh, you know, once we shut down the Seneca plant and... uh that's on the west side of town, and uh, I, I was not in an organizing role in this. I was just coming out to rah, rah, rah support and stuff. But they had radical cheerleaders that led the way. It was so awesome to be led by radical anarchist cheerleaders <laughs> and then shut down this toxic-ass plant. And, like, they had us all cheering all day with their different, like, anti-capitalist cheers and, like, made the day. I've been to countless protests protest but to have five people work out some routines while we sit there for a few hours was awesome (laughs) yeah um you know i think about i did a no gmo march uh the first anti-gmo way of of marches and uh i wrote a song for them they asked me to write a song at that protest and i wrote this song and going back to it uh, old tradition, there's this thing called zipper songs. And this has been used by activists for the past hundred years. I'm going to say it now in case there's young activists that have never used this that want to keep using it for the next generation. And zipper song is the idea is you take like the melody or the lyrics of a well-known song that already exists and you kind of shift it to fit the protest sitting. And I have you ever seen that where like maybe there's like a protest song but it's like in in the uh, melody of a Madonna song or something. I don't know. It sounds really. I don't know if I can think of anything off the top of my head. Okay, it's a it's an old tradition, and it's not just for like popular songs. It also allows for these protest songs to stay alive. Like, uh, which side are you on? Which we talked about briefly before. It, it, it's been used by the feminist movement, civil rights movement, environmentalist movement, like all labor movement. Uh, it's because, like, the zipper song ideas, you just change the words to fit. So, like, you know, I, I did na 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. That's a big sports chance. Like, go to a. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, at that protest, I changed it. So, na-na-na-na, hey, 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 
goodbye. We don't want no GMOs in our life. And we had 2,000 people singing that in that moment. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, GMOs still exist. But, you know, we've passed, like, some anti-GMO legislation since that time. I'd like to think that out of those 2,000 people that were singing it, some percentage, even if it's, like, a low percentage uh, of people go, hey, I personally don't want GMOs in my life, and I'm going to make a personal decision while also thinking about it in a collective sense, in a larger societal, structural sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another way that like art in a protest setting can quickly get a lot of people on board around some kind of message or, mm-hmm. or meaning. Yeah, I think theatricality and music and the cheerleaders and sort of creating this carnival-type atmosphere can keep people engaged, too. Yeah. You know, because it can be so depressing, the things you're talking about, you know, but it's like, how do you keep people's spirits up and keep people engaged? And you do that through this sort of, like, performance and, like, music and all these stuff. I've never had protest facts or activist facts. Get me like that, you know? Like, usually activist facts are like, oh, shit. Stuff is effed up, you know? (laughs) And that's why the art, where the art is so useful to get back up into the rah rah. Well, we know all these numbers, but we could do it anyway or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, you you make it, making horrible, horrible things fun somehow. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and I think that that's, I love that old Emma Goldman. Uh, quote, if I can't dance, I don't want to be a part of your revolution. Because it's like, what are we doing it for, too, if we're not, like, doing it for creating a better world? Yeah. You know? And so we should always remember that the reason we're going through us fighting and conflict, and activism is always going to have an element of conflict. I mean, it comes with the title. It comes with the role in life. But it it gives you something that's beyond, above and beyond, and that transcends the conflict. Yeah. And I'm very grateful, personally, for that. There, did you see the, I don't know what it was called, like the zombie walk, the gray people walk at the Hamburg protests? Uh Uh-uh. Wow. Very powerful. I just saw a video. I'm sure seeing it in person was just incredible. There were hundreds and hundreds of people that were wearing just, like, suits and nice dresses and stuff, but they were all covered in gray, like, almost like clay or whatever, just, like, powdery. I don't know how they did it, but they were just all completely gray, and they were just, like, shambling around, kind of. And then one person, like, stops and, like, looks up and, like, starts brushing the grayness off and then, like, looks at, down at what he's wearing, and he just, like, rips off his suit, and he's wearing his bright colors underneath. <laughs> and then he goes, and then he goes and, like, sees somebody else, and somebody else sees, and then is, like, also kind of wakes up, and, like, it's such a simple, symbolic idea, but then everybody, everybody, and, you know, it's just, like, it just, like, was one, started with one person, and then it just, like, spread yeah. into hundreds and hundreds of people doing this, and, like, I'm choking. It was very powerful. Yeah, the yeah. video is just like very, it's such a simple idea. Because you know, it seems like even on paper, it's like, oh, you know, it could seem trite. You know, you're wearing gray, then you're wearing bright colors and stuff, but just like seeing it happen and then like having people just be so joyous and like dancing around and, you know, it was just like. That is a joyous rebellion. Yeah. And, and yeah. joy should be part of the rebellion because like. 
if you look at Tala Teleri and regimes, they're never really pumping the joy factor. <laughs> it's not really their deal. It's no, it's pumping the grayness. Like, yeah. But it's pumping it in more complex, less noticeable ways. So you find like some kind of very simple image that really gets at it all. The grays. How many of us have felt at some point or another hopeless and gray about like the world and our, our situation within it. And like that so that simple image like just speaks to, to everything that is wrong yeah. with the entire regime or way of life yeah. or system. So yeah. I, I love it. Like Yeah, yeah. I mean people are very, very symbolic. You know, and seeing seeing it somehow makes it real. I don't know. And I feel specifically about dance this way. At first, there's something specific about dance that's incredibly powerful at, at creating an energy in the in that space to yeah. kind of, like, that moves. Like, you know, we say, you know, it shows up in our language. We talk about being feeling moved. Yeah. It's like, because you're, you know, literally moved can, like, move you, and that's the reason that our language yeah. has it that way. Yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, and it just goes back, like, I, I agree. Dancing also is part of that joyous rebellion, and you know, totalitarian dictatorships—they just don't want dancing. Like, no. it's, they don't want you to dance. They don't want you to do art. They don't want you to have fun. They don't want you to be joyous because joy is a, an art and dance. And they don't. It's like if they don't want it, that must be a powerful yeah. thing against them. And know? so, part of what we should do as activists now—I believe this right now. Some people might disagree with me. It's like. We need to have so much fun with the joyous rebellion side. Yes. And make that so cool. And make that so fucking sexy, dude. That, like, people can't <laughs> yeah. help but join the side. Join yes, this side. Exactly, join this team. exactly. Like, there's like, oh, I want to be with those anarchists over there. Because look at how much more pleasurable and joyous they are with their life. Right. And problems are still exist. They're always going to exist, you know? Yeah. We're not, like, talking about some floofy utopian mirage but still we can choose to live in a greater state of joy and harmony yeah, and promote it, it in this moment yes like, like in this particular moment we can be joyous and like you can join us in that yes you know i think that's how we will win the numbers game yes which we definitely need that's one of the real problems we're having right now is the totalitarian regime and including and the situation with liberal media they're trying very hard to separate anarchists and separate anti-fascism from community, you know, and say that the people fighting fascism, this, this is how you get fascism, is you say the people fighting fascism are terrorists, are terrifying, are separate, are different than you are. Yeah, You know yeah. what I mean? So, like, we have this really, like, intensive problem where we have to get community to trust us and to see that we are them. You know, there's yeah. not a separation. Like, anti-fascists are just people. And so like, we need you know, to, like, continuously talk to people that don't agree with everything that we agree or, for. Like, as long just, as we're safe. And some of us might not be safe to do that. I, I have a lot of privilege as a white male that I feel like I can go out and talk to people of other kind of demographics well, in society and try to, like, promote understanding, mutual understanding as much as possible. But I think um, what we're saying before is maybe a better approach, where you just make it so irresistible that people come to you. 
You know what I, I, mean? I think I think yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that statement. I think you should also like talk to other people too that don't yeah. fit into your kind of bubble and group because how are you going to win the converts and let or mm-hmm. convert people and gain new people unless like you also I'm not saying like we knock door to door on people's <laughs> doors like you know I'm not saying that we become Jehovah's Witnesses or anything <laughs> but like I say if um, you're on a bus and you know I try to provoke political conversations in public all the time like I'm waiting in line I'll pull up my phone and be like what I can't believe this article says this and it's saying this I'm just trying to like egg somebody on in in line to to engage with me and very often people don't have same views as me but you know I always learn from them even if I don't agree with them but I think it's important for people to see you know, like like me, I'm, I've, I've been a Buddhist since I was like 16, probably an anarchist since I was 17. But people need to see that like, oh, here's this guy that's like a Buddhist guy that also calls himself an anarchist because like, I, I don't look like a typical anarchist. Like, And it's the same thing with like the Antifa situation really is like in order to not be cast aside as the other is the boogeyman, like we absolutely need to not hide in the shadows. And, and do the community actions. And, mm-hmm. and then by, and while we're doing the community actions, also mention what our beliefs are. Because that's what, you know, uh, I was at a stop hate thing at the Boreal before it closed, and there was a guy on the right. This is a, a few minute aside, but I'll take us back to where we are going. <laughs> um, and like, he's talking about how he started out like as an alt right guy and a militia guy, he's a vet. And he joined the left. And he was like, you know, it was very hard to join the left. He's like, there were so many times I would question and people would make me feel like shit for just trying to understand something and a new perspective. And he's like, it was excessively hard to get accepted by the left or by Mm -hmm. the radical community. I see so much of that. And I I think it's a very stupid strategy uh, that so many of my friends engage in. And... uh, so we, we got to be able to not do that. We got to be very open. The, the, you know what that guy said? He's like, the reason people join the right is, he's like, they're easier to uh, join. They already got their narratives already established because they're pulling off the archetypal, like, American kind of narrative, which has Easy. been around for a long time, Simple. you know. And, you know, if you go a lot of these country towns and stuff, they're feeding people and stuff. So they're literally providing, like, mm-hmm. support. And, you know, like, there's this touching scene of uh, Motorcycle Diaries, uh, Shay's biography, where he's talking about these young people who became socialists, and he's, like, talking to them, and he realizes that they pro- they don't really understand the theory. They're just fucking poor people that are hurting, and there's some people that are coming with some resources that are talking about a different theory, and so they're going along. And, like, that's a lot of people. I love people, and I I mean that it's no way as an insult, but I think a lot of people, like, are just going to join whatever side is is supporting them and making them feeling good, and it's accessible. So, like, I feel like... You know, the Antifa factions going down to Harvey is brilliant and beautiful, like, because it's making people accessible, it's helping people, and, like, those are two things that if you want to get acceptance and, and follower or people joining, you mm-hmm. want to swell your ranks, then I think that that's a winning thing to do. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the double-edged sword about art and the art culture, is that it's super important 
for mor- morale and engagement and all these things, but um, art artists and art culture can also feel very elitist, feel very yeah. inaccessible. Totally. Like you're a, like it's a it's a it's something that a certain type of person gets to do. Yeah. You ha- you're an, it's it's an identity. You're an artist. Yeah. You know, so then if the movement is associated with being an artist or and people feel like they can't do that and there's something and you know, people feel shame and sad, you know, people are ashamed to try and dance in front of other people. Like people don't want to draw, you know, if you're no, I, if, you know, yeah, people yeah. don't want to sing in front of other people yeah. if you're better than they are. So if you've got if we've got this like really beautiful, important arts culture on the far left, but it's also, in its own way, alienating. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so where I think... I'm so glad that you said that. I think the art culture here needs to take a cue from, like, a very ancient, antiquated kind of notion of art. Like, it's a Western idea, for example, that you have a rock band on stage and you have an audience. That's a Western concept. Hmm. Um, You know, you go to most of the world's, like, tribal people and everybody's getting down on, on some kind of rattle or drum or shaker. And we need to have more of that. We need to... uh we need to disintegrate those boundaries so it's not just like, oh, I'm Plato that's like some really special artist and, and not everybody can be a special artist. I was at Home Depot today. This is so effing sad. There's a woman and she had her uh, hammock painted like piano keys. And I said, wow. Her what? Piano keys, her, her ham- hammock, hammock. Like, uh, you know, smock type of thing, like work outfit at okay. Home Depot, you okay. know, like Oh, oh, like, yeah, like, like a hammock. Thing? Yeah, yeah like that the goes. Apron thing? Yeah, like an apron. Okay, an apron. Okay, sorry, okay, so she had a, a piano painted on her apron, all the keys on it. I was like, that's really cool. I was like, I play the piano. I'm an artist. You know, I said, do you play? And she goes, this is this broke my heart in the moment. And she goes, I had to sell my piano to pay rent a few months back. And I go, that oh, sucks. No. That sucks. And painted on and, her. And yeah, and she's like, oh. so one day I hope to be an artist again. And I, I said, well, you're, you're always going to be an artist. And that's, you know, I mean, I have my kid with me. There's a line behind mm-hmm. me. It wasn't the time to have a huge conversation. That's all I felt like I came up with at that moment is you're always going to be an artist but what we need to do is realize that we all are artists uh if you can talk you can uh like there's this old i i have a friend from kenya who used to say if you can talk you can sing if you can walk you can dance and like we need to kind of go back into that way of being and one great way is having more participatory art you know like i think about Theater of the Oppressed models from Augusta Bull that came out of, like, um, Brazil, where it's, like, really, he talks about the spectator is the spect actor, meaning, you know, a lot of these, like, Theater of the Oppressed games that he uh, designed that I uh, I now follow because he created a whole school and there's lots of Theater of the Oppressed uh, facilitators out there. I'm one of them. You, you take these models they created, you, pr- you create a, a short skit, and then you filter the audience into roles in the skit so people from the audience become actresses mm-hmm. and actors. And so it's like we need to do more of that. When I, when I perform, I always create lots of space to invite people up to do poetry or to rap or whatever just to help create that communal vibe and get it out of that necessary division between artist and uh, 
the rest of the populace. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the liberatory... It's, I think it's a key part of the revolution is this self-liberation and community liberation. You know, every person that feels afraid to dance and then starts dancing, there's a liberatory moment. That person can now move on, you know, we yeah, yeah. revolutionary. Yeah. It, you know I mean, so it's like those small moments are not even small. Yeah. You know? Totally, totally. How are you going to come up with the guts to, like, confront a racist joke if you, you can't dance in a crowd? So it is kind of like steps. I don't know if I, I necessarily fully stand behind that, but I do agree that there's, like, it's important to be able to know a dance, how to dance. And it's not even how, like, there's, like, strict theory just unless you're doing to, long... Is yeah, move your body dancing. or just, like, yeah. like, it's okay to sing and... Yeah, without like, a purpose, without an objective. I think that's pain. a lot yeah, of dance, no. you know? It's yeah. not like you're trying to get anywhere, but how much of our whole, like, societal mind frame right now is, like, you're trying to get somewhere, <laughs> yeah. you know? But dance is, you're not necessarily trying to get anywhere, but maybe a circle, like... <laughs> you're trying to get here right now. yeah. Oops, sorry. Um, yeah, you're trying to get here right now. That's what we were sort of talking about earlier, and it comes back around to that point, is, like, we have this joyous moment right now, and if we live this moment in as much joy and fight, you know, and, like, push as we can, then we'll move on to the next moment of joy and fight. And then, you know, you just keep doing that until you get somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Until you don't. (laughs) Until until it's not doing it. (laughs) But then if you don't get there, well, you, you know, you were living that moment anyway. And you had joy. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's more than the result of your action. It's the intent behind the action in its first place. And I feel like that ethics is really important as we move into a climate change world. We may never be, you know, we may never be able to save the world in a sense that six billion people can live on it. I don't know. Maybe climate change is going to create a new reality and max capacity is three billion or something. We may fail in, like, trying to save lives before it's too late, and that that sucks. But at the same time, the action, we did the action behind it, and sometimes that's all you can do because tomorrow's not a promise. It's like I saw this anarchist shirt that a friend of mine has a while ago that said, even if the world were to end tomorrow, I'd still plant a seed today. I love that. I know. I stole it and threw it in one of my songs. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the intent behind it, you know? Yeah. Like, it's beautiful in this day, in this moment, and yeah. right now. And that's what matters most. Well, and some of those seeds, you never know. You, you know, we just, like, right now, we, you know, people say, like, most of us are probably never going to see the revolution we're working for. You know, we're, we're never, or not not necessarily we'll see the revolution, but we'll never see the world yeah, at this moment. Yeah, it's going to take generations fighting, in my Yeah, that we're fighting so hard for right now. Like, we will never be there. Yeah. So, but what we're doing right now is planting seeds, you know, and just, like, throwing seeds out into the world. And it's so nice to hear, you know, the idea is, like, well, that's what, that's, that's enough. Yeah. Like, that that itself is an act, even if it's not, you know, some of those, some of those will never grow. Yeah. You know, but maybe, maybe one will. Who knows, you know? It's the mentality that I have to do in order to not fall into despair traps from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, think maybe maybe I've already planted a seed. That's an important seed, you know. Yeah. You know, maybe you have. You've planted one seed somewhere. 
And that one was the one. That's the one that's going to make some huge change. You'll maybe never know about it. You know, butterfly, typhoon, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, I I got a poem once that, uh, I'll shorten the story, was slid under my door. And to give you some context, I was living in Thailand, and uh, I just got my second felony, and... uh, I paid all that off, and I was moving to Thailand to reinvent myself. And uh, I knew I couldn't be a pot salesman anymore. It wasn't working out for me. And so uh, one day a poem gets slid under my door, and it's uh, Let Your Light Shine, written by Miriam Williamson, made famous by Nelson Mandela. It's the poem they read that I briefly mentioned earlier when he was released from prison uh, in his first public address. Anyways, I read this poem every single day. It became the mantra to my life. And uh, the poem is, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond all measure, because it's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who are we to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? But actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your plain small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking down so that other people don't feel insecure around you. When we are born to wake manifest the glory of God that is within us. And it's not just in some of us, it is in all of us. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So I get this poem, I put it on my door, and I read it to myself every single day, and I'm like, oh my god, this means so much. I get back to America, and I know that I just can't be a drug dealer again. Like, that's just, I did that for three years, and uh, I had fun times, but I kept getting in trouble with the law. I realized it wasn't meant for me. So I had to reinvent myself, and I saw this poster up that was like, uh, come protest the Iraq war. I had never been to a protest before, never spoke at a protest before, but I showed up to a meeting, a planning meeting for this. I said, I have this poem. It's not really about the war. Okay, first I go to this meeting, and everybody's giving all these numbers and stats about why the war is wrong. I'm like, yeah, I agree. It's a waste of precious oil. And yeah, I agree. People are going to die. And yeah, I agree. All these numbers. But we weren't, like, really speaking to the soul in any way. I was like, well, I got this poem that, you know, it's not really about the war, but I feel like it's about the war and so much more. And so, like, uh, I asked them if I could read that poem, and they said, uh, yeah. And uh, I read that poem, and it inspired a lot of people that day, and it it really was my first public performance, and uh, my first time as an activist, and I met my wife that day, and I could turn this into a 15 minute story explains my life but anyways um (laughs) the point of the matter is is that poem inspired a lot of people there's a couple hundred people that day and a few years later i am uh just getting my mail i get the mail and i get a poem in the mail and it's that poem it's from the same guy that gave me that poem back in Thailand. He was a good friend of mine. And so I call him up that day. I'm like, Darren, you gave me that poem years ago, and that changed my life. I was like, I'm an activist. I'm an artist. I met my wife through that poem. That poem is like transformed my life. He had no memory of giving me that poem on that day. Wow. 
Wow. He was like, I gave you that poem? I was like, yes! I <laughs> took like a, a screenshot of the poem with my phone to show him. I sent him, and he's like, yeah, that I gave you that poem. Because it, it was like with a with a special border, and the poem they sent me again, the mail, was with the same border because he had been passing that poem out for like a decade or I don't know how many years. But I was like, yeah, that poem changed my life. He had no recollections of anything about that. So you never know when one little seed that you plant spins somebody off and they go and dedicate the next 10 years of their life to being a protester or whatever, (laughs) you know? Wow, what a great story. Yeah. Wow. And see, there's a poem at the center of it all. Yeah, yeah, poems. So everything, every seed that you've planted came from that seed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 You have to wonder, you have to hope, you know? And that's the thing, is like maybe something you didn't even realize you did is the seed. But maybe if it comes from a place where, you know, you've been working on every poem that you read, every, you know, some art that you saw or something, all of it delves into your consciousness and changes you a little bit. And then that changed person that you've become is the one planting those seeds. Yeah. You know? I like that. I like that. I like that. I, you know, I also like this idea, and this comes from a story, an old story, the Bhagavad Gita. And this helped me with this kind of idea of worrying about being successful or not successful at the outcome of my art and change-making efforts was, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, I'll make this story short, too. But the <laughs> Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna's, like, supposed to go to war. Krishna is the god. He's creator, destructor, and trickster god. And uh, he's like, you gotta go to war. And Arjuna's like, I don't want to go to war. And he's giving all these excuses. And... Uh, You know, at at one point, Krishna says, look, the results of your actions are mine. The glory, all of that belongs to me. All you get is the work. All you're supposed to do is the work that you felt called to do. And that really helped me realize, you know, like, we do this kind of work because we feel called to it. You feel called to making this podcast. You're going to put a few hours of your life that you can't get back into it because you feel called to it. That's the most important part to to remember and if 50 million people check it out that's beautiful too and and you know pat yourself on the back every every success should be celebrated but at the same time what matters most more than the success of how many people did it is that you listen to what you were called to do Mm -hmm. and so you know i i think about that and it helps me you know sometimes i might be like how come i'm not as popular as somebody else out there or oh my god, I'm so much more popular than that person out there. Either side, it works to just remember you're, you're just entitled to do the work. Just like, just do the art, just do what you're called to do and mm-hmm. let go of, of what actually grows out of it. Of course, you want to plant the seed in a way that something should grow, but yeah. <laughs> don't be attached. Yeah. It's, the, it's the same capitalist twist on things where if your product doesn't have value to somebody else in some way then it's not worth anything yeah you know what i mean as opposed to just the act itself you know yeah yeah like the act itself being liberatory just for you or yeah like you said being well in quaker a quaker we call it a leading like you feel led to do something yeah and um you know following that leading 
you may never know why you got that leading. I got this, um, this microphone was a leading I got back in December. Just randomly, I'm just on the internet, and I just was like, what is this? And I just, like, saw one, and I was like, I can't really afford that, but it's like, but I felt this push, you know, yeah. I felt this leading for it, and I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with it, like, I sing, maybe I'm supposed to start recording my singing, or maybe I'll start writing, and you see people talking into their, you know, mic- little handheld microphones for, if they're a writer, and then so yeah. that they can, you know, <laughs> transcribe, transcribe it, later. it later, or whatever, yeah. and so I didn't know why I was buying it. You know, but then I did, and it turned out, you know, I started this podcast in April, I guess, so months and months and months later. It's just, it had just been sitting there, you know, yeah. without me having any idea what to do with it, and now it's, it changed, it's my life. Yeah, and it yeah. was some kind, something, some seed that was planted at some point, you know. Yeah. So I don't know, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, and yeah, we, we definitely should celebrate those micro liberatory moments those just little liberatory actions and and small per, small worlds that, and by small world i mean like the individual yeah you know some point i had i got just a little bit of confidence just a tiny <laughs> bit enough confidence to be like i'll do something with this mic yeah you know yeah so yeah i'm so glad you did thank you i'm <laughs> glad i did too yeah it's been a really wonderful project something very different than anything I've done before and um liberatory yeah and I and I yeah and I hope that you can plant seeds for other people to take the same steps because it can feel like a little thing that then grows into something that yeah changes yeah. your life you know and and we need to be aware of those things because yeah. they're part of the narrative and the picture too right. and we need to promote them like one of this philosopher I like said, you know, in the right context, tipping somebody $20 can be a revolutionary act. Mm. And think about that. On one hand, it's like, how is that a revolutionary act? But in the right situation with one mm-hmm. person and this specific situation with them, that can mean a huge thing. And it could be anything. I, like his example was, was a tip. But uh, look where you least expect it and you can oftentimes find like little acts of liberation or little revolutions I think it's learning to listen to that small voice that there's something that there's all these these little leadings and little desires that you have you know that have been suppressed and they're theirs you know just somebody walking through in a store and seeing a little cheap watercolor three dollar watercolor kit and being drawn to it for whatever reason you know just like yeah buy it yeah you know just buy it like there's some reason that it's speaking to you in that moment who knows what it means yeah maybe it'll maybe it'll sit there for you know five months and then and then your daughter picks it up or your cousin picks up or or you you pick pick it it up up and yeah watercolor artist you know yeah who knows totally like learn to listen to those little those little leadings, you know, if you want to dance and you feel like for whatever reason, but like you have that push to be dancing. You know? Yeah. Like, and so not only are you going to be dancing and not only are you going to be like in a Joseph Campbell sense of following your bliss and living a happier life, but also, uh, you know, like I think about God, Hannah Arendt wrote about this guy, uh, the Nazi guy that um, he killed a bunch of people. And Hannah Arendt, like, was like, 
she's a existential philosopher, German philosopher that was uh, asking this question of how could people listen to Nazi orders? How could people do that? And uh, she went to the trial of one of these war criminals after they caught him. I wish I could remember his name. And because uh, he was like one of the big ones. And uh, she was expecting to see this demonic guy. And he was actually a mild-mannered, mid-sized bureaucrat that just did what he was told. And he was told to kill people, so that's what he did. But the point is, it's like practicing listening to your intuition or your heart or whatever around the watercolors. Like listening to that inner voice, I think is a very important thing. Like we need to have a strong relationship or ability to have conversations with our inner voice and my hope is that when we do that one of the side effects beyond the ability of to dance in the moment and follow your bliss and live a happier life is also if you're confronted in an oppressive moment or a moment where you're asked to carry through with oppression you can be like wait a second the voice inside of me says i don't want to do that i'm not going to listen to you because mm -hmm. i'm practiced with listening to myself and what what i know is right mm -hmm. and what i know i should be doing instead of oh i'm told to raise my hand now or whatever and, and just like that way of being where we get so socialized into just like following yeah. orders that's one of the good things about art too is it's disruptive of these like normalizing societal oppressive patterns yeah you know and then maybe like you're saying before maybe even if there is if there is sort of the idea of like there's artists and there are people who are talented and devote themselves specifically to art and should be celebrated for that um maybe it just sort of can invite people into that and be inspired by their ability to do art, you know? Yeah. So, like, giving people courage by, you know, I don't know. No, I, I agree, I agree. And I've, I've put 10,000 hours practicing rapping or 10,000 hours, like, practicing beatboxing and stuff like not everybody's done that so you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be you know a little bit more proficient at that those things um, but at, so you know it, it is i i agree that we can honor those things but i think the artist definitely should be giving um and the meaning of their art should be in a sense of some sort of giving mm. You know, because yeah, otherwise art is just masturbation, and maybe there's maybe there is some art that it should be <laughs> masturbation too, actually. Um, um, but you know, like you should be like helping your audience. I feel like um, not feel like they're alone or feel like they can be themselves. Yeah, and that's that's a beautiful gift that art can give. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel it should it should be it should offer something that enhances the audience's yeah uh, experience because like if an audience is giving an artist their attention, especially in 2017 with how much there's going on, it is a profound gift. There is so much to focus on. Like I'm gonna have a gig at Vanilla Jills in a few days. I realize there's so much going on in the world. If people want. 
spend an hour with me listening to me like rap and sing and do poems, I'm going to make sure that like to the best of my ability that that rapping, singing and poetry makes people feel inspired, makes people feel joyous, maybe informs people, but offers mm-hmm. something to them. Yeah. And and above and beyond personally, I hope that my art is empowering because I know what it feels like to be feel disempowered and saying what you just said and applying it to a protest situation we're not just saying no on something but that the protest itself gives something to the people there and is is a giving thing yeah you know so that people leave feeling empowered and leave you know or you know that that's that's a really interesting idea. I think I like it's the lot, yeah. only reason to do a march in 2017. And the reason I say this, we had the largest march in recorded human history around Iraq war. And we still went to war with Iraq for a decade. You know, like the thing that, that I'm saying is like big marches of people used to stop governments. They don't stop governments anymore. And now, big marches of people, we should say, used to look a lot differently, you know? Like, they might march up to, like, you know, I think about the march at the French Revolution. They marched up and beheaded some people, you know? <laughs> like, So, yeah. you know, we don't necessarily behead people. We just fly signs. But what I'm saying is I don't ever feel like marching even... Like the Women's March or whatever. We had thousands of people. The People's Climate March. Thousands of people. The physical effects, I don't know. I don't think the Women's March did anything on a physical, tangible thing to derail the Trump agenda. But, so looking at it that way, it's like, that march sucked. Why even do that? Why, why go down there? Why spend an hour walking? But if you look at it in another sense of like, Marches where like, oh, I went to this march, we were jumping around, we were singing songs, I met some cool people, I didn't feel alone, like I, you know, like suddenly somebody has an experience, they feel more empowered. Yeah, I heard this information that I didn't know before that made me think, did you know, by the way, you know, people come home and they talk to their neighbors about it. I know I've had good protests where I've came home and like... You know, my neighbor might be walking the dog, might be like, hi, Plato. I'm like, let me tell you, buddy. <laughs> and, like, and that's, that's I feel like, when a protest march works. It gives somebody that profound, uplifting, inspiring, inspiring experience mm-hmm. so that they want to do something else. Even if it's just immediately go home and tell all their neighbors. Yeah. Which is what I do. Yeah. Well, yeah. shit, it's been an hour. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you.